Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. An example from my book, You Just Didn't Understand, that's often quoted, uh, driving in a car, and she says, are you thirsty? Would you like to stop for a drink? And uh, he isn't, so he says no. But then it turns out she actually had wanted to stop, and so they're both frustrated. She, because she wanted to stop and didn't, and he didn't. Then he, because he thinks, why are you playing games with me? Why don't you just tell me? That's Deborah Tannen, quoting from her hugely influential book, You Just Don't Understand, which is about how we all have what she calls conversational styles that often make it hard to understand each other. In this conversation, we try pretty hard to match our styles. And later, she tells me about her new book, Finding My Father, in which she struggles to understand a complex man who was deeply influential in her life and work. I am so glad to be talking to you today. This makes me really happy because you, you're, you're like the expert on all the stuff this whole podcast is about. Thank you so much. What a thrill to talk to you. Thank you. The idea of conversational style is really your contribution, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um... As a sociolinguist, so a linguist who studies social interaction, um, the idea that people have different ways of speaking, I call it conversational style, uh, and if you talk to someone whose conversational style is similar, the chances that they will understand how you meant what you said are pretty good, that you'll understand how they meant what they said are pretty good, but when conversational styles are different, then all that is called into question. So, yeah, and the implications of that for different ethnic groups, gender, of course, the one I'm best known for, um, at work, personal life, public life. So, and when I, in my book about women and men, you just don't understand, I make the point that everything we say has these two levels. Does it create connection or does it put someone uh, maybe one up or one down with respect to the other and those two levels are always there. Um, I have examples of many conversations where women are more likely to focus on the does this bring us closer or put us farther apart. Men are somewhat more likely to focus on does this put me in a one-up or a one-down position. But they're both always there. An example from my book, you just didn't understand, that's, that's often quoted, 
uh, driving in a car, and she says, are you thirsty? Would you like to stop for a drink? And uh, he isn't, so he says no. But then it turns out she actually had wanted to stop, and so they're both frustrated. She, because she wanted to stop and didn't, and he didn't. Then he, because he thinks, why are you playing games with me? Why don't you just tell me? Uh, And for me, this is an opportunity to explain that we don't um, interpret everything as, as if it's the first time we're hearing that. It's part of how we expect the conversation to go. So when she said, are you thirsty? Would you like to stop for a drink? She didn't expect a yes, no answer. She expected, well, I don't know, how do you feel about it? And then she could say, I don't know, how do you feel about it? Uh, And that that opens the floor for each of them to say how they feel about it. So it might be, I'm not thirsty, but if you want to, it's fine. Or it might be, I'm kind of tired. Do you mind if we don't? That would also be fine. But if he just says no (laughs) to her, that shuts down the conversation. It sounds like someone could say like I could say, (laughs) that uh, he felt it was clear enough. His conversational style was that I don't need to think more about this if you're asking me a question about me. I only need to answer with regard to me. The factual answer is no, I don't need a drink. It's not necessary for me to pick up on any other contingency like the fact that you might need a drink. That sounds like more than a conversational style to me. That sounds like (laughs) imposing a dictatorial nature to the relationship. (laughs) I'm going to continue to defend this guy. Yeah, Um, (laughs) do, please. (laughs) And this is actually one of the universals of all my work that I tend to look from the point of view of each individual and try to see how each one has good intentions. Not everybody always has good intentions, but many of us do, and how hurtful it is when others think we don't. Um, But yeah, uh, if you don't expect a question uh, to be a way of starting a a negotiation in a way that's how her, her question was meant, I'm opening the issue, opening the floor for a discussion of whether or not we should stop for a drink by asking you this question um, but I expect the conversation to go a certain way and, and uh, then we'll each say what we want. If you don't expect decisions to be made in that way, then you just don't hear it to mean that. Um, and, and let me give you another um, example that maybe takes the gen- it, it flips the gender um, with respect to indirectness. I was discussing, uh, I was actually being interviewed by a journalist about conversational style, and, I, and, and we were discussing this very example. And he said, you know, sometimes my wife uh, says something like that, and I know what she's getting at, but I'm not going to give it to her because I don't think she said it in the right way. She should tell me what she wants. And I remember thinking, what a jerk. <laughs> well, right around that time, I was writing about apologies. Mm. And so many... Uh, Experiences people had told me about, and I this actually applies to myself as well, um, that if somebody owes an apology, we think they should say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And that is one way in which um, my husband, and, and he's not in all ways, he isn't always typical of women, of men, I'm not always typical of women. This is one way in which he is. He doesn't like to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Uh, he might say... 
I'm sorry for everything, you know, to make a joke of it. Um, the, the good all-purpose one is, yeah. I'm sorry you feel bad. Yeah, sorry if, sorry if anyone was offended. Yeah. But I realized, I suddenly realized, that is exactly parallel to what this guy was saying to me. He said, I know what she means, but I think I want her to say it the way I think she should say it. Well, we women who want a guy to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, we know he's sorry. We just yeah. want to hear it. We want him to say <laughs> yeah. it the way we think. That's an example where more men than women prefer indirectness. So indirectness, I think we all use it just in different ways at different times. I guess the reason I jumped all over the guy about just saying <laughs> no is that in my own life, there was a time when my wife would say, do you know where the screwdriver is? And I'd say no. And I began to realize after, I'm sorry to say, after a few years, that simply not going on with the conversation a little more was cutting her out. If I would say, no, I don't know where it is, maybe it's in that drawer uh, under the silverware or something like that, that, that says I'm engaged with you and I'm not dismissing it because I'm not interested. But that that was my conversational style. I, I thought it could it needed some improvement. <laughs> so do you think that even though you have to understand a person's conversational style, it might not be a bad idea for everybody to improve their own style? <laughs> I love it. It is always a good idea for everyone to understand that conversational styles differ, to understand the style of the person you communicate with over time. Uh, and then figure out how you're both going to adapt. So, yeah, that worked out great because you adapted to her style. It could have worked out by her adapting to your style. Either one could work. I mean, she could have developed the habit of saying, um, hey, do you know where the uh, screwdriver is and could you help me find it? <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I, I really, it's, uh, I, I'm always asked, what's the best style? And I truly believe any style can work if both people agree on it and, and uh, respect each other's styles. You know, you're reminding me of a kind of important example, the male tendency to think about status when they don't know where they are in the car and she says, ask, ask that guy for directions and he doesn't want to do it. That sounds like he doesn't want to lower his status by giving the other person the chance to know more than him. Is that right? Yeah, isn't that astonishing? So that was an example that I wrote in the book, You Just Don't Understand, uh, 25 years ago, um, where this simple thing of... Um, asking someone you don't know for directions. Many women tend to interpret it as, okay, you make a fleeting connection with a stranger, you get where you're going, you haven't lost anything. And many men are more sensitized to the fact that you're putting yourself in a one-down position with a stranger. Uh, now, many men also told me at the time, 
Yeah, well, they may not know either, and they're going to tell me the wrong thing. Now, why are men more likely to think that someone who doesn't know would tell you the wrong thing? Because they're realizing that guy doesn't want to say he doesn't know and put himself in a one-down <laughs> position. And and women don't think that way. It's really, That's really what, kind of interesting. Yeah, We're but, so aware of status that we're yeah. imputing it to the other person. But can you believe how that has become? That it, This is one of the most amazing things to me in the reaction that I got to the book, You Just Didn't Understand, which, you know, just got so much more attention than I ever could have imagined um, a book of mine could get. That's the one that was on the bestseller list for four years. Yes, yes, yes. Amazing. and it really does that this this uh, conceit that men don't stop and ask directions really, really traces to that book. It was never talked about before I wrote that. Suddenly it was everywhere. Doesn't that feel amazing <laughs> when you contribute a meme to the culture that it becomes a, a, a significant coin of the realm? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But that, now that strikes me, that straightened me out again because that strikes me as not, it strikes me as a situation where the man could use a little more growth. <laughs> because, because if you don't, if you don't want to find out where you are, <laughs> there's something wrong with that. So where are we? I would say, no, his, his conversational style is to stay ignorant. That doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> no, you're, you're quite right. I have had the experience of asking directions and being told the wrong thing. So maybe that's a way that I could benefit from uh, asking less frequently uh, or another parallel example to that in the workplace. Uh, so this was this is, again, a real example. Uh, this goes back to when there weren't as many women in medical school as there are now. And a woman told me she had been rated very low and she knew that she was really good and she didn't understand why this was in medical school. Uh, so she asked the supervisor and he said, well, you don't know as much as the others. And she said, why do you think that? And he said, because you ask so many questions. Mm. And it really, this is something that's been supported by research that women in classroom situations, in all situations, are more likely to ask if they don't know. Now, there are situations where... Those who don't ask, including many men, would benefit from realizing you could ask. And, and um, you know, if you're the doctor and you don't know the <laughs> what's the correct dosage, you probably should ask. Um, but I actually had people say to me, you know, I get fed up with, with my employees asking me all these questions. They should go find it on their own. So there, too, there are situations where women could maybe benefit from the perspective of men and realize that when you ask a question, you're not just getting information, you're giving an impression of yourself as someone who doesn't know. So as you communicate across these different conversational styles, it sounds to me a little like you're saying, if you want to improve the quality of the communication, it's kind of important to have an ear open and listen for what the other person's conversational style is, to understand in a way their frame of mind, their perspective, to listen to them at a deeper level, which sounds like you're asking for a little more empathy. I kind of resist thinking in terms of psychological concepts like empathy. Partly I'm a psych- not a psychologist, I'm a linguist, but also I think we often... Um, 
are inclined to jump to psychological interpretations. And I think sometimes that's just the cart before the horse, because what's really important as a first step is to understand that there are conversational style differences so that you could step back and have a question to ask and have um, an idea about what else could be going on. It's quite a step to realize you may have completely different experiences uh, of how to use language. And yet you seem to place a lot of importance on listening to tone of voice, observing facial expressions, other kinds of gestures. That's in a way, from my perspective, that's accepting the whole, the whole shebang as part of the communication and possibly, possibly communicating some of the meta message in ways that are usually not not paid attention to. We often don't don't hear the tone of voice, or all we hear is the tone of voice and misinterpret anything else. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think I think we all do in face to face communication. We may not realize it's the tone of voice. We're picking on. We might pick an argument about the word spoken, but yes, people respond to tone of voice facial expression, nonverbal, you know, what your body is doing. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that communicating in written form, so that's texting as an example, email in the office, memos, um, often leads to misinterpretation because you don't have those signals. Although we have developed a whole slew of ways of um, using emojis or uh, punctuation or haha to let yeah. people know that you weren't serious but yeah it's to, it's to me often, that's a, that's a, an unconscious recognition yes that we have to make ourselves clearer and and that we that we're liable to be misunderstood by the other person When we come back from our break, Deborah Tannen talks about her new book, which is a deep dive into the life of her father. It's called Finding My Father, and it's subtitled His Century-Long Journey from World War I Warsaw and My Quest to Follow. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show, bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together, plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. 
but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is clear and vivid, and now back to my conversation with Deborah Tannen. Your new book, Finding My Father, is is so interesting to me because it seems to be as much about his need to have his story told and your wish to tell it as it is about what was truly an extraordinary life. Do I have that right? Thank you for asking that, and you're right. That's the overriding question of this book. Um, why was he so eager to have his life story told, and why was I so eager to tell it? Uh, my father is definitely the one who had this sensitivity to words and to language. He loved to write. He was uh, happiest, I think, sitting at his desk writing letters. When he retired, he began writing his life. He never tired of telling stories from his childhood in Warsaw. He was 12 when he came to the United States, yet um, had such detailed, bizarre astonishing how many specific details he recalled from pre it's world war one he's born in 1908 before during and after world war one uh warsaw you know i think about it this way sometimes my father was very aware that that he was he was raised in a hasidic family hasidim in uh, warsaw that this was a world that no longer existed and i think he by loving to tell these stories and and making sure he remembered all these details, was preserving that world. And my first idea for the book, and I think it was his too, was that I would bring back to life and preserve that World War I Hasidic community of Warsaw. Now, by the time my father came to the United States at 12, he was not only not a believer, uh, he was self-identified at that point as an atheist, a communist, and a Zionist. Uh, 
because his Warsaw was the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, and he was very influenced by his mother's younger siblings, especially a sister only six years older than my father, his aunt, but really like an older sister, who had been swept up in the Bolshevik Revolution and really believed this was going to bring about a world of, of justice and equality and... Um, Religion was was holding was making that impossible. So I think part of it was was that wish, um, but I realized that his entire life captured something about the twentieth century, uh, the cataclysmic events, the effect of the um, two wars, of course, but also the depression. Um, and communism, which he was swept up in in this country, but then turned against. Um, you know, my father was a hoarder. <laughs> he saved, I think, every piece of paper that came into his life, every letter he received, copies of many letters he wrote. He saved letters he had received from a woman that he might have married instead of my mother, as well as copies of many of his letters to her. And he wanted to share all those intimate stories with you. Yes, it's so interesting. It's like you were his beloved daughter and his therapist at the same time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he told you everything. <laughs> I know. And some people are horrified that he told me kinds of things he told me. Um, you know, women always have women friends they tell everything to. Men don't so much. Um, but psychologists do say if there's someone you can tell everything to, you, your heart is somehow <laughs> um, lighter. Uh, and I think once he realized that I had endless patience, I wanted to hear anything he would tell me. I guess that was a um, an opportunity for him to look back on his life, because this is only after he retired. And the older he got, of course, you know, that's another thing. When people get a lot older, their sensors fall. Uh, and I don't mm. think he would have dreamed of talking about things as personal, including his sex life, uh, when he was younger. But once he was in his 90s <laughs> and 80s, you know, then uh, here's somebody who really, really wanted to listen and who cared so much. And it was a way of him, I think, looking back on his life. And I'm thinking of your wanting to listen. And I remember early in the book, you loved him when you were a little girl, and he wasn't there much. So that I wonder if listening to his stories after a lifetime of wanting more than you're getting from him, you, you, got, you got a tsunami of him. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right about that, yes. Um, it was a way of making up for all those years when he was either at work or in politics uh, and never had time for me. And anyway, I'm the youngest of three sisters, so the youngest kid is never alone with the parents. There's always all these other people there. Mm. Um, so this opportunity to have many, many hours uh, listening to him. And um, again, I think that that was precious to him too, to have someone who as many hours as he wanted to sit and talk to me, I wanted to sit and talk to him. I was struck in the book by your saying when you started to read the material that cataloged his life, you expected to hear stories about relationships. And more often you got lists of the jobs he had had. 
Yes, isn't this amazing? It's real difference. Um, when he sat down to write his life, which he did after he retired at 70, he made a list of all the jobs he had held and all the work he had done, came to 68. And then he set about either writing or recording. I gave him a tape recorder and a cassette tape, writing or recording details of every one of those jobs. Mm how he got it, the work it involved, the people they worked with, anecdotes, uh, scenes. And to him, that was a summary of his life. And am I right that your mother wasn't that interested in hearing these stories? <laughs> yeah, my mother was polar opposite. She had no interest in hearing about the past. You know, people ask me, why don't you write a book about your mother? <laughs> she doesn't want to tell you anything. Yeah, and I, and I actually caught it on tape because I was recording a conversation with my father and my mother said, gee, you know, why don't you write about me? And I said, I'd love to, you know, mom. Um, and I started asking her questions. She's not interested. You know, do you remember anything? She was born in Russia. Do you remember anything about your childhood? No, you know, we came to this country. My life is really here. Do you remember anything about the house that you lived in? Not really. Um the furniture, what it looked like. There was a table and chairs. And and then she get then she, that's it. We came to this country. We had a good life. We we didn't weren't rich, but we always had enough food to eat. And that's it. <laughs> so polar opposite. Yeah. And you know when you live with somebody and they keep wanting to tell you stories you heard before and you're not interested, it gets pretty annoying. So I think she was happy. It seems to me like a different kind of book from the books you've written before. And it's a book that expresses a real deep, rich relationship. Did you discover anything in delving, diving into that relationship that threw some new light for you on how people communicate? Or did you see things mostly confirmed? Uh, I love that question. Um, one of the things that was really uh, eye-opening to me, reading my father's journals, in my mind, my mother was the one who was often unhappy. She did have a tendency to be depressed. My father was always cheerful and upbeat. And uh, reading his journals and having him tell me about his, his uh, life I realized he was often very unhappy. His life with his mother, he had he had no father. His father had died of tuberculosis when he was very young. He never knew his father. Uh, so his life with his mother and his one sister was far worse than anything I could have imagined. Um, he quit high school at 14 and became sole support of his mother and sister from 14 until he married my mother at 24. Uh, even into his 20s, his mother was physically abusive. Life at home was was screaming fights. I had no idea. Um, and he tells one anecdote that really, I, to me, was very revealing. Uh, this is during the Depression. He's um, unable to find work. And his, uh, although he says he always managed to, he always found a job the next day. But he's walking uh, past where his mother lives. His mother's sitting in front of her house. She greets him pleasantly. And he asks, could he borrow $5? Not only does she say no, but she begins berating him. And she had a lot of money in the bank. And it was his money. Mm. Money he had 
earned supporting her, giving it to her, and he later learned she was stuck. She was uh, putting half of it away. Um, and he describes it looking back. He says, uh, even thinking of it now, I feel like crying. I had uh, family to support, no means of support, and I had to hide from them how I felt. This was a revelation to me. This this feeling that he was always upbeat and cheerful, often it was hiding um, some deep unhappiness. And the idea that you could do that out of love, out of a sense of protectiveness to your family, so as not to... Uh, to upset them or or worry them, um, my father worked in a factory. He he had uh, gone to law school at night and became a lawyer, even though he had uh, had not graduated from high school, um, and got a master's degree in law, passed the bar. But it was the depression. So uh, for complicated reasons, I discuss in the book. Um, it wasn't until he was fifty, when I was in junior high school, that he was finally able to support the family as a lawyer. So until I was in junior high, he was a cutter in the garment district in New York. I had absolutely no idea that he had negative feelings about working in the factory. Mm. Uh, again, always always cheerful and um, talked with great affection of his fellow workers there and told funny stories about the factory. I'm interviewing him. He's old. And I say, how did you feel about working in the factory? And he says... I hated every minute of it. Hmm. I had no idea. Did that give you an insight, another facet to your theory about how we communicate? It's quite related to what I was saying earlier about conversational styles. The assumption that someone will show you their emotions, show you how they're feeling in the way they're talking, in their facial expression, the way they hold themselves uh, that that too is a matter of conversational style, mm. that many people will not let you know how they feel. And it may be because of good good intentions, you know, so as not to upset somebody they're close to and they love, or bad intentions because they want to accomplish something and <laughs> maybe even conceal uh, for some, some material end. Um, but to that extent... Uh, I guess the other thing is I realized how much my uh, sensitivity to tone of voice and subtleties of speech and what that tells you about communication, to, I really realized that, that that also traces to him. Uh, his, uh, his journals are full of observations like that about people, uh, even though we tend to think of it as being more typical of women than men. I think that's probably temperament more than anything else sensibility you know as we talk i'm i'm aware that we're talking mainly about person to person relationships and yet we're living through a time now where the entire country we live in is divided so sharply that they can't communicate with one another so sharply that they operate from a different set of facts from one another do your insights into communication help us in any way to bridge that gap? I think you're right that the most um, pervasive source of this conflict is less 
that people aren't communicating and more, as you say, that they're starting from such fundamentally different assumptions and and facts. And um, we listen to different uh, TV stations or podcasts or uh, read different um, sources. We get Facebook messages. And as you know, once you look for one that has one perspective, Facebook gives you more and more and more extreme versions of that perspective. It doesn't give you the opposite. Maybe Facebook should have new algorithms. <laughs> yeah, I, I get you... the impression that not only does it confirm your bias, it gets you addicted to your bias. Yes, yes. It gets more extreme. Yeah, yeah. Give me more of my own opinion or I'll... Or and, I'll and more extreme versions of it, apparently. Right, apparently right. Apparently the algorithms, That's right. Yeah. You got to up extreme. the dose. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, more extreme. Part of the problem, I think, is we no longer have fora in which we get together with people of very different backgrounds. Um, a sociologist, Robert Putnam, has written about this. People used to do things like playing cards or go to bowling leagues mm -hmm. that would have, you know, workers and, and uh, bankers and, you know, people from different backgrounds would be thrown together, and we don't really have that anymore. Um, so we're more... Uh, thrown together just with people from similar backgrounds and similar interests. Well, I'm hearing that we're running out of time, which makes me really upset in both a, a meaningful and meta way. <laughs> and we, we usually end our show with seven quick questions. Are you, are you game? Yes. Okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? You said quick, but I'm trying to think of an answer well, here. Um, <laughs> the questions are kind of probing, even though they're yeah, quick. Yeah, I really wish I understood uh, technology better. Hmm. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> um, try asking questions. How do you know that? Uh, what do you uh, then? Uh, what do you think about? And give them a counter example, but it's got to come out like you're really asking and you're not challenging. <laughs> right. That's the, that's where tone of voice comes in a yeah. little bit. And phrasing. Yeah. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> uh, does your husband write your books for you? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I have been asked that. <laughs> <laughs> that that's, that's, that, that, that's strange. Okay, number four. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, uh, just start talking. Don't wait for him to stop. And, and they, <laughs> they quiet down? Oh, everybody will stop eventually, sure. That's, I never heard that one before. That's good. <laughs> now, let's say when we're able to, again, you're sitting at a dinner table and you're next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a real, an authentic conversation with that person? Oh, I love this question. It depends on their conversational style. <laughs> Some people will do great if you ask questions, and I think that's a very common way to start a conversation. But if you're only getting monosyllabic answers, then try something different. Um, try telling them something and if see try different topics and see what seems to interest them and then follow up with that. 
try to find some some point of connection. Could be where you're from, could be something in your past that overlaps. Um, so those are a couple of different ideas. What gives you confidence? In the world or in myself? Well, it, it's kind of left open to see how <laughs> what, which one you choose. I think um, I always meant it as what gives you confidence in yourself. But, oh. <laughs> but you can take anything, take, take it anywhere you want. Um, I wrote early on an article I wrote very early on. A perfectly tuned conversation is a vision of sanity. And I would say a perfectly tuned conversation gives me confidence that I'm a right sort of person, you're a right sort of person, and all's well with the world. Very nice. Last question. What book changed your life? One that I wrote or one that I read? <laughs> the, book, the book you just don't understand changed my life. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's no doubt about that. Well, they all probably have changed it one way or the other. What about a book you read? book that I read. Probably the book of those personal letters you read from your, <laughs> from your father's cash. But was there one that, that turned you around that made you think differently or act differently? I was an English major, and I have a master's degree in English, so I certainly should have an answer to that question. But I can't say that I'm thinking of any book that changed my life, changed my way of thinking, lots of books. Um, mm. With a book we all read way back, The Divided Self by R.D. Lang. Mm. Um, all the books of Oliver Sacks. Mm. I'm a great fan. Well, your books have changed so many people's <laughs> lives. Thank you for those books. And thank you for such a charming conversation. I really, I, It was elevating and inspiriting. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a conversation that gave me confidence. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> great. Bye-bye. You were great to talk to. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Deborah Tannen's books on communication include Conversational Style, Analyzing Talk Among Friends, and her most influential, You Just Don't Understand. That book spent four years on the New York Times bestseller list, including eight consecutive months at number one. Her new book is Finding My Father, His Century-Long Journey from World War I Warsaw and My Quest to Follow. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is the last episode in the current season of Clear and Vivid, but I'll be back next week with Graham for a preview of our next season, which begins March 30th. We'll also have news of a brand new season of Science Clear and Vivid. In that series, I'll be talking to some very curious people about their curiosity and how it's both illuminating our world and helping to change it for the better. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>